Welcome to the Sacred Body Podcast, where we investigate trauma resolution, healing, sex, and intimacy, and motherhood, all through the lens of the sacred and wise nature of the body. This season, we're focusing a little bit more on inherited trauma and how our inherited history has impacted our individual paths to wholeness. So if you're here, you're on a journey, and I welcome you every part of you to the conversation. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce to you Molly Caro May who is an author, teacher, and writing coach. She facilitates personal narrative workshops across the country. Her focus is voice and where language meets the animal body. Her most recent book, Body Full of Stars, Female Rage and My Passage into Motherhood, was named a searingly eloquent memoir by Kirkus and excerpted in Time and Lenny Letter. Her first book, The Map of Enough, one Woman's Search for Place was called Addictive by Elle Magazine. She is a recipient of a fellowship from the Taft-Nicholson Environmental Humanities Center and recently gave a TEDx talk about rage and the female body. Her mission is to democratize expression and work with a story as a healing tool. Molly is an incredible teacher, a personal teacher of mine, and today we spend time talking about the body, somatics, healing, creative expression, and motherhood. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hello, Molly. Hi, Stacy. I'm so happy to have you. Um, I've wanted to have you on the podcast since I started the podcast. I read your book, Body Full of Stars, at the recommendation of Kimberly Johnson, who's a teacher of mine and has been on this podcast. And I read it while I was pregnant. And what was so interesting about that is there, um, well, so much of what you include in that book was so relevant to the work I was doing in the world regarding female pelvic sexual reproductive health and the sort of archetypal implications of our pelvis and our sexual health and reproductive capacity. And it was, I mean, remains one of the few books about motherhood, because that's a significant part of it, too, that spoke to me before uh, having given birth. Like, there are a lot of books that I started reading while I was pregnant. I was like, meh. And then after I had my baby, it was like, oh, I get it. I get this. This feels really good to read. <laughs> um, so... I know that this is not your first book, but I would just love to start kind of with this significance of the rite of passage of motherhood on your work as a creative being. I mean, a small topic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, so, um, so say that last part again. Because I think I know what you mean, but I want to be clear for the question. Yeah, the transformation of becoming a mother, 
the yeah. significance that that had on you as a creative being. Yeah, totally. Um, wow, so much. I mean, I'll start with a little story. Um, when I was pregnant, I went to a um, writing workshop type of thing mm -hmm. and conference and met with a um, woman who I is a writer, famous writer, um, and was asking her about my first book. And I told her I was pregnant because I was eating, I was had a lot of morning sickness and I was eating, or general sickness, and was eating crackers like out of my purse because I, so I wouldn't vomit. And I, so I had to explain why I was doing that. And she looked at me and was like, oh no, this woman who doesn't have kids. And she was like, oh, and I said, what? And she goes, I just, and she basically told me that she didn't think it was possible to be um, a writer with any sort of quote success and a mom at the same time. And so I drove home from that experience, like crushed and called my high school English teacher in tears being like, you tell me it's possible because she is a mom and a poet and all this. And she said to me, you will be far more creative um, as a human being because you have become a mother. Like it's far not like without a doubt, like that it will open in you um, this expansive connection to creativity that you can't even imagine yet. And she was right, you know, and, and I felt it like from a physical level of like just my pelvis, literally, literally physically, the bones of my pelvis opening when I was newly pregnant, I could feel that. Um, and then all the, just the, the heat and the blood and the energy in that area during pregnancy. And then afterwards, I mean, anyone who's a mom knows, like you get split open, um, like a seed really in, uh, in ways you can't know until you do it. And so in that way, I feel like ex incredibly expanded creatively, creatively, um, in terms of like how I, I, I keep saying expanded because I just, it feels expansive. Mm -hmm. um, and with that is the conundrum of like less time for myself to be um, super connected to my creativity. So, so what that means is I, I feel like a little, like a ninja. Who's <laughs> like, who's like, you know, um, making dinner for my kids while I'm doing this, while I'm like touching in with my body while I, you know, and, and I don't want to always be in that multitasking freight experience, but um, I don't know. Creativity has a whole new meaning for me now than it did before. And it's significant that you have um, grounding in your body as a source of creativity, which I don't know that like all creative people do. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I just, I don't know that that's um, a part of the process necessarily. And uh, where in your process, because you are, if I remember right, you shared that you're in the process of somatic experiencing training. Yep. And I wonder when that became a part of your process, because that certainly, I, I, I imagine that that lends itself understanding the significance of your body. It's like you don't necessarily need wide swaths of time to be connected to this creative resource when you have that understanding of the significance of the body to begin with. Yeah, totally. Um, I think I... I've always been body interested. I wouldn't say necessarily um, like body, well, maybe body aware too. Um, I definitely go to my intellect very quickly. 
um, feel safer for me there mm. for sure. But I, I've always been interested in the body, obsessed really with the body and how it works and my body and all those pieces. Um, and so it's always been part of my practice in terms of um, my writing practice, checking in before, checking in afterwards, lots of movement, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. with the somatic work, um, experiencing learning that I'm doing, now I have a, a completely different approach to um, how I interact with my own stories and my own writing. I've always been like, I'm going in, I'm doing the deep dive, I'm going straight to the trauma, like as fast as possible because I'm going to be in it and just experience it to quote, move through it. And now I'm like, ooh, I actually don't know that that technique has had like long-term sustainability for me. And so now in the last two years, I've really been reorienting around that. Um, that approach. So that, mm. that feels new. That's awesome. I think that's, um, sort of like, a one of those areas of creativity or artistry that, um, gets held up as like, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you really have to be like constantly swimming in your pain swimming in the soup of addiction and difficulty. And um, I've certainly fallen prey to that, like wondering if getting sober was like the end of my capacity to be interesting, (laughs) which is absurd, of course. And my life has expanded exponentially since renegotiating my relationship with, you know, my favorite substances. Um, And that was some, that was something interesting too, that I, um, well, we, we'll get to that later, but it's interesting how, um, like, titration, which of course is a really significant and essential piece of somatic experiencing work, lends itself to actually going deeper. Would you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, well, I, first about the, the like, creative, um, depressed artist, addicted artist archetype, that I think is so, um, well, it's, it's, makes people feel seen for one, but it also is so damaging um, because we don't have, we don't really have a narrative out there culturally, collectively, that's like, oh, you can be a well-adjusted artist. Like you can be an artist, a creative person and not be like on your face, not able to move most of your life. Mm-hmm. Like you, you know, and not to say, I do think that certain people have more, um, you know, feel more sometimes or less in freeze or whatever, or up mm-hmm. and down or doing whatever they're doing. But, um, but you can also be well-adjusted within that. And I think that that's an important narrative to put out there for the mm-hmm. young people who are moving into lives where they want to really center and like, you know, put their creative lives um, in the foreground. Yeah. Yeah. Would you speak a little bit to, somatic experiencing um for those who might be less familiar yeah so um the training i'm in is the three-year training and it's it's working with the nervous system and um trauma which we all have um and trauma is really self-defined right so something that's traumatic to one person might not be traumatic to another person so um it's we all get wired up um our nervous system gets wired up based on our like environment. Um, sometimes it's epigenetic, um, all different factors come in and 
we have propensity to move towards, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, and that's different for each person. It's really our human animal body. Um, making it's, it's like our survival physiology where we're trying to, to use strategies that are not intellectual, not frontal lobe, but, um, lizard brain where we, um, we're trying to survive. And so we do these things and they're adaptive in the first moments that we, we do them and then they become maladaptive patterns in our bodies. And so it's how to renegotiate and metabolize those experiences. Um, there's, I mean, that's very brief, but, and, and I think in terms of like the story piece and the titration you mentioned earlier, um, my biggest learning with somatic experiencing is that we only heal by moving between what is traumatic and also what is grounding and feels good. Mm-hmm. And so just by like sitting in the soup of the trauma, that actually is not rewiring or healing your nervous system. And in many cases, it might be actually um, re-traumatizing. So the healing happens in the movement, the pendulation between that trauma and then also like resourcing yourself and seeing um, what feels good. So that that feels like huge yeah. um, to name. That is huge. And I'm curious how that, like, I'm, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that writing has been for you a long time resource. Like, it's a, it's a tool that brings comfort, brings relief. But how has your writing either process or experience of writing changed as you've started to learn more about your nervous system and your body and your lived experience? And this, yeah. you know, idea of story and what we focus on. I know that's been a big part of your work lately. Yes, totally. And what's interesting is that I think before I had the somatic experiencing language, I had sort of like we most of us do this intuition towards yeah. certain pieces. So for 10 years now, I've been telling people like proportion really matters in writing. Like if you're just, if you have this one tiny thing and you're focused on this one tiny thing, um, you know, with characters or people in your life, right, personal narrative, um, you have to have both basically trauma vortex and counter vortex about that person for it to be a full, full, full story, which is actually the true story, which doesn't mean you, you um, discount truth ever. But I mean, there are pieces like that or like braided essays, which is moving between, um, again, that pendulation. So there's a lot of stuff that sort of is naturally there. Um, mm-hmm. I think the biggest piece for me that has has perhaps shifted is my tendency, which is my own wiring, to really go for the trauma. I'm way more comfortable, comfortable in quotes, in the trauma than I am like looking at my window at the green tree and focusing on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I had um, as a truth teller, which you are, and probably many people listening are. I had this idea that. Um, those people who were focused on what felt good were in avoidance and they weren't like looking at the real hard truth. And I've, I've changed that perspective. I think that's still the case for some folks, but now I'm really understanding that like sitting with what feels good um, is not avoidance. Mm -hmm. It's actually like resourcing and in a deep, profound healing way. It seems obvious, but I was really resistant to that. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. Um, it's sort of like, <laughs> a, 
a joke amongst those I'm in relationship with. Like, if you ever want to have, like, you can count on me to make the situation uncomfortable, right? To just, like, you know, not only name the elephant in the room, but sit it on the coffee table and, like, this. We're going to talk about this. Everybody circle around. <laughs> oh, you don't want to? I'm going to hold your hand while we do it. Um yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's some element to it that I think is, like, also part of the artist. Like, totally. that, that is a component of our drive to express in a particular way. And I was listening to a podcast earlier this morning with a woman named Anna Verwall, who part of her work, so she was a nurse for a long time, but part of her work is in pre- and perinatal psychology, so talking about the imprints of being born and the significance of that as like our primary trauma pattern. And then this notion of recapitulation and how we find ourselves in these situations again and again to try and create resolution. And I think so much trauma for everyone is this experience of like naming a problem and being shut down for it, naming an injustice and being told that you're overreacting being told that your perception of something is false or wrong. And then I think that perpetuates the biggest trauma for all people of just not trusting yourself and your instinct. Yeah. So well said. Well, I have a great writing teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let y'all in on a secret. Molly is my writing coach. Um, So I would love to read i'm going to read from both of your books um little little sections but something i'm i'm interested in uh because of my own birth history and personal history is origins where we come from and it's also of cultural significance for all of us increasingly so just like in, in an undeniable way in our present moment in history, especially as white Americans. Um, and so I'm going to read uh, first from, if I'm not mistaken, your first book, The Map of Enough. The Map of Enough. Um, I just love this so much. <laughs> Trees of my youth spoke to me. The willow, great protector, the gnarled barranca trees, the waxy magnolia leaves, the oaks dripping with moss. I hadn't ever felt the blood in my body match the sap flowing up and down the tree, rooting it down and rising it up. Roots held the tree up, yes, but the inside cells, but the inside cells drawn from other trees, from faraway trees, from forests combed by humans and from forests no one would ever see. That made it grow into its destined shape, and then fortune allowed it to tweak that shape. The tweak was necessary. Bloodlines teach us how to stand. Later, we have to teach ourselves how to keep standing. So often that involves amending the how. I love it. (laughs) So I'm curious about where you come from culturally and ethnically and how you have um, how the significance of that has showed up for you and how it's relevant for you now as a person in this world 
such a good question. It's funny, I'm um, listening to that. I don't even remember writing that, <laughs> writing that section. <laughs> so it's really fun to hear it back. That's awesome. Um, so I am a white, um, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual woman who was raised out of this country for the first 10 years of my life. Um, my father and his parents grew up abroad and primarily his parents were in South America. He was all over the world. Um, and that's how I grew up for the first 10 years in Australia, Dominican Republic, Spain, and Mexico, going to um, international schools mm -hmm. with people, you know, of all different ethnicities and backgrounds. However, not most, mostly not of the same socioeconomic background, right? Mm -hmm. Like people are at, in like private international schools. People were middle to upper class. Um, and in terms of heritage, lineage, you know, I'm like classic, like Irish, English, a little bit of German and French thrown in there, mm -hmm. um, background. My, um, how this is playing out now and always, I mean, I, as a child was really aware of um, what, a, you know, moving every two years, the, the feeling of being an outsider in terms of not belonging to a community or a place and felt really um, attuned to that and sensitive to it. And therefore I think sensitive to others who feel outsider. Um, not to say I didn't like it necessarily, but um, that's just what it was for me. Um, and now I am like many of us, but even before this year, like really steeped in these questions of, again, my own internalized racism and white supremacy and all those, I mean, those sound like buzzwords now, right? Mm -hmm. um, but primarily actually the embodiment of that. Um, so learning a lot from Resma Medikin and he has this 12 month study program happening that I'm part of, um, not he a woman, Kareen, has organized it around his book. And um, that, for me, is like the, a growing edge, is looking at how, like, I can intellectualize all those realities and ideas a lot, but I'm really curious about what it means for me as a white body to move in the world um, and, um, like, deal with my own trauma around race so that I can show up in the way that I need to um, and that is required really um, now. So, so that, that's my curiosity and my edge. And that's different, it's different, the embodiment piece than it is to like read all the books, right? So, so, so that's, that's where I sit now. And I have, I have so many, in terms of writing my book, I mean, I was aware of that a lot in writing Body Full of Stars, the second book. Mm -hmm. um, and also when I look back on it now, I see that I had a, uh, like sort of an every woman not fully but an every woman voice there being like every woman experiences x y and z every woman experiences this mm. and that and I, I talk about race in the book um but I, I if I were to write it now I think I would have a different angle there to say like there is no every woman experience right like we're all, like it's it's dependent on race ethnicity all these pieces um and I'm still I'm still negotiating that within myself so and I'm curious about the, like, what it, because these, you know, the experience of race, ethnicity, 
of course, I, I'm now immediately going to contradict myself before I even say what I was going to say. Of course, it plays out in how we're born and how we enter the world. We know that as white women living in America, where we have the worst birth outcomes of any developed country that are race driven. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's, it's significant. And in this, you know, as a, as a birth worker and birth advocate, the, the driving motivating force is, but this is not how it should be, right? Like there is something significant and profound and universal about giving birth. And in that, um, in that, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm attached a little bit to this notion of transcendence and how do we, how do we, um, come to this edge of acknowledging like the universal in the experience of a birthing body without getting caught up in the divisive names and labels. Uh, because I do think that there is something significant and specific to a birthing body because of, you know, what, what you write about, how this pelvis is specific. <laughs> the, you know, you, you were alive in a real way, a spiritually significant way in your grandmother's body and her internalized trauma and her birth experience and on and on. And knowing that you have two daughters, the significance of that ripple effect from your body. Um, I don't know. I, I want to be, I want to be clear that I think there's um, a real need because of the reality of the world we live in to be as inclusive as humanly possible with regards to the experience of birthing, but it is, you know, there is a, a birthing body, <laughs> the body totally. that births, yes. right. Is a birthing body. Yes. And yes, I, I agree with that. Um, I do agree with that. I think it's the both hands there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'd like to read, um, a bit from body full of stars. I could, I would love to just read the book on my podcast for people because it's so beautiful it really like it really got inside me and I maybe have a third of the book dog-eared and bought it for two of my friends who um, really took comfort in it, took refuge in it in their postpartum time. So I want to thank you for this contribution. Oh, okay, I love this. I love this page. Part of my more is making space to go within every single day. It happens once a week. For one, I imagine a huge, heavy yoke fastened around my hips, like a skirt with metal hanging from it. It weighs my pelvis down. It is knotted thousands of times at my belly button. This yoke can represent whatever holds you down. My women hold me up. But these days, I make the yoke my mother, and her mother, and her mother, and her mother. The women. I pretend to stand on a dock. I start to undo the knots one by one. My face heats up and tears flow freely like mine is right now. <laughs> uh, I let it happen and lower the yoke down, the whole carcass of it, the part that hangs on my sacrum. Then I lift it and walk toward my mother and her mother and her mother. And lay it at their feet. 
this is yours, I say. I don't need it anymore. Ugh. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. We women carry each other, whether we want to or not, whether we plan to or not. Our legs carry the pelvis and carry us across the earth. If we stacked pelvis upon pelvis upon pelvis, would it become a backbone? Everyone originates in the pelvis. And then you speak to your daughter. Do you know that, Eula? You were an egg inside me, who was an egg inside Mare, who was an egg inside Pat-Pat. I just want to keep reading the book, but I'll pause there. When did you learn about this? And what was that? Because I think that um, a little bit of assumption here, I'll, my experience, the awakening of that information for me was like a shock through my body like of course I'm my my personal story is that I was adopted I was given up for adoption at birth and learning about kind of the significance of being an egg inside my grandmother and the imprints of course of birth but how we inherit implicit memories from these bodies that carried us uh I didn't need scientific proof of that. It just like shocked my whole system with, yes, I get that. Yeah. This is true. This is real. So when did you get this information and what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I don't, um, I love how you described it there in terms of just like not needing proof. Um, I don't remember when I learned that exactly. Um, I don't remember the moment, but I do remember the, um, recognition of it like meeting it as something i've known or something for you know ever and also simultaneously the, the awe of it and and actually the um like the for me it becomes really visual like i see my grandmother who you named there pat pat and i and i imagine like this little tiny me in there and I just get, I just get a visual, like I get scenes. Um, yeah. And so, and it's, it's heavy, right? <laughs> it's heavy, which is the yoke, right? It's heavy. And, and I, and as a mother of daughters now, um, I think this applies to sons too, but for me, I have two girls and I, I think about this all the time all the time you know like just the matrilineal lineage and like what I'm passing on and I see it I see my own bits of my own trauma being passed on I also see the, I also see the progress between the generations yeah. I, I really see that you know like what my mother and what my grandmother endured versus what my mother did versus what I do versus what my girls do I see the progression of humanity mm -hmm. um which is really neat to see. And there's still, it's all, it's still fucked up, you know, like, um, and my daughters are still going to carry a bunch of fucked up shit for me. And so, you know, yeah. That's what we can count on as humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, 
So I, I would love for you to share a bit of your postpartum experience. I don't rem- I may have been through social media. It may have been in a newsletter. I remember you writing, my body rocked pregnancy and birth and postpartum rocked my body. Um, and that's so fascinating to me. Uh, yeah. And as a person who supports others through that childbearing continuum and wants to help folks prepare as much as they can, you know, that's, that's really, I think that's where it comes back to the more subtle aspects of our being, like what lives in your unconscious, what's the fucked up shit that you haven't yet dealt with. Um, so without getting too far ahead of myself, would you share a bit about your postpartum experience and, um, how that became this wonderful book? Yeah. Um, Thank you for that question. Yeah. So I, um, my body rocked pregnancy in the sense that I like, wasn't, I, I, that it, um, I didn't have any complications. However, I was vomiting for 10 months. So I was, um, nauseous and really uncomfortable, like nauseous and throwing up, but, it, but my body, but I grew a big baby. Like I, you know, I didn't have any placenta stuff. Like, like I, it just, it was easy in that, in that way. However, I had a lot of mood um, mood instability when I was pregnant, Mm. um, for a number of reasons, my, for a number of reasons that it's not worth going into right now, but, um, but the actual birth for me was, it wasn't like a textbook birth. I ended up going from home to hospital and the whole thing. And I had to have a vacuum delivery. However, it was incredibly empowering. The experience Mm. incredibly empowering. I felt very connected to my animal self, um, I didn't feel flooded or over, like it was, it was amazing. Um, and my second birth too, with my second daughter, my postpartum experience in both cases, especially the first one, um, was fine in the beginning. Um, cause I think I was empowered and sort of in denial. I was, I was incontinent and thought that was just going to sort of go away. Mm. You know, um, I had a health. I lost your volume, Molly. Oh, I heard you, you cut out right before you said I had a healthy baby. Oh yeah. I ha- so I had a healthy, um, the first couple, the first month or two were fine. Mm-hmm. Like I, I thought that the sleep, deb- I thought the sleep was going to sort itself out. My incontinence was going to sort itself out. I also, um, my thyroid hadn't really tanked yet. Um, my hormones were sort of doing okay. So, um, and then around month three is when everything started to really unravel for me. Um, a lot of this now I can say like my eldest is seven and a half. I can say that I really, really understand now that so much of this for me. Um, and I think for many women is hormonal. Um, like it's the first thing I would tell someone like work with some sort of practitioner who's working with your hormones in a way that feels nourishing and, um, I just know that about myself. So I was diagnosed eventually with like, I don't even know how to, how you say it, premenstrual dysphoric disorder or something like that, where I would have these rage experiences, what felt like all the time, but especially before I bled, started bleeding um, again, three months after my daughter was born wow. and my thyroid was tanked, all these pieces. I was sleep deprived. I mean, you, you know it, like you can imagine it all. Um, but, but, but separate from that, I think what really, feels clear too, is that all the, um, 
life experience or whatever my particular trauma is that had not been dealt with. And it's not like I hadn't dealt with things, right? I had done a lot of personal therapy. I had done a lot of body work, all that. But all the other stuff um, came shooting out of me. And what I recognize now is that I had been in like some sort of freeze for a long time and, and actually pregnancy and delivery blasted me out of, out of freeze too fast. Mm. Um, mm. And I was exploded open and mad mm-hmm. and mad about all the things, um, all the things about that had happened or that I've experienced and all the things for women. So it really affected my, my partnership and many times my husband would say to me things like, what you're talking about has nothing to do with our relationship. Like you're talking about stuff that like, I don't act like those men, like mm-hmm. this is not our dynamic. And I was like, I'm mad anyway. And I was, um, so it was intergenerate, all those things, mm-hmm. um, so much anger and oh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I think this is, <laughs> an incredible demonstration in your capacity to articulate it and write a book about it. This, uh, back to the piece of sort of our inherited trauma, intergenerational trauma, and being sort of the mouthpiece for the lineage. There's, there's eventually, um, you know, one person in the family who like just says the thing and goes off the rails or is the artist when everyone else is a doctor and like we call it the black sheep the one who doesn't quite fit in but is the embodiment and the expression of everything that has not been embodied or expressed for however many generations and knowing what we know of the collective suffering under a medical birth model and the ways that women have been silenced about that part of their existence um, is significant. I completely resonate with this experience of like raging at my husband. And it's like, I know as I'm going, it's not him, but I can't stop it. It You know, it's like, it's been silenced for a hundred years and like, it has to be directed at a man. It just does. (laughs) It has to. Um, And I'm curious uh if you know whatever whatever feels good and real to share how becoming a parent transformed your marriage yeah um gosh (laughs) (laughs) Um, i and i don't know your husband but reading your books like i feel like really affectionate toward him yeah no i know i know i hope people do he's um incredible person and really grounded and I feel like like most couples you know we've weathered a lot in becoming parents um and I think where where we are now I mean he really during that time even though I didn't always feel it um held the center mm-hmm. you know he held the center while I was spinning in a thousand different directions and and you know really uh, taking a lot out on him. And some of that was valid and some wasn't, you know. And in our second experience, you know, he had was definitely like, he was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, here we go. Like, and he was trying to do all the things, like, let's make a different plan. And we yeah. did. And like, 
it was better, but a lot of that still happened because my body just takes two and a half years really for me to really mm. normalize hormonally. Um, and now our youngest is three and a half. Um, we are literally like little groundhogs starting to let peak out. And it, um, what I'm realizing is that um, he now has a lot of trauma from this whole experience that has not been addressed. Um, cause I've, I've been addressing mine and looking and there's a lot more to address. And now what's happened is we're in a, in a, um, a different moment where I am looking toward him and w- needing and wanting to hold space for him to, to metabolize the last seven years. That feels really good. Mm. And you know what? It would not have felt good seven years ago. I would have been like, this is not about you, you know, but now I'm like, wow. I see this, the broken person in you from this and from before. And, um, and so that's the space we're in now. It feels good. It's not easy. No, no, for sure. But it's significant. And I think so important to address. Um, I love the specific acknowledgement of like the partner's trauma. Yeah. And, um, that's another podcast episode. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Um, in Body Full of Stars, there's another really wonderful quote that I feel like is relevant here. Uh, you were speaking about the safety required to collapse and you know the benefit of collapse is this release, right? And it's a privilege to be able to go into these spaces and feel the intergenerational trauma and express it and move it and transform it, digest it. And you say in here, um, I would rather live life with a companion, but my education and era has given me the opportunity to thrive alone if need be or if chosen. My fellow women also speak out. It is no longer so taboo. Most of us won't be burned at the stake, or at least in the West. Those sisters who are still stoned or beaten or murdered elsewhere and here, they are the ones we must scream out for, speaking words they want to but cannot. We have this um, responsibility (laughs) to do this deep transformative work. Um, And I think it's also it's significant to acknowledge the, I mean, the privilege of it. And, um, well, for, gosh, for all of us to be as resourced as possible, given, given the resources that we have. And in our, you know, present configuration, generally in the West of like, you know, we prize independence and we really treasure this sort of like autonomy, particularly for women. Like that's the foundation behind feminism and the women's movement of like, I have a voice of my own and I have the right to do it on my own and be by myself. And I can, you know, there was at one time, I'm thinking of Virginia Woolf, like real truth to her acknowledgement. I can only be truly myself by myself. But now moving into this period of like real um, integration of this masculine feminine archetype piece, uh, like what you shared about 
your partner's time and need to process and being in a position now to hold space for that and be the one who holds center. That's so significant. Um, and of, of course, we can't point to like any one thing that has enabled that awareness or capacity within you. But is there anything that you would name as being a big part of that? Of, of trying to hold center for him, mm-hmm. that piece? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I would say it's the nervous system work, actually, that, that I've been doing um, and, mm-hmm. and the awareness of, of my own, even learning that um, backing down from a trigger <laughs> sounds so elementary. <laughs> But before I really learned about nervous system, if he would say, you know, I really think it's important for you to learn how to back down from your trigger, <laughs> like, let's take a break and we'll come back to it. I was like, don't fucking silence me. No, right. I'm not going to be silenced in this moment. I have a lot to say. And now I have a different understanding of that, which is, oh, I can still say the thing. I just am not going to say it right now in this moment like mm-hmm. this. And I needed that education and that learning to be able to buy into that idea because I do believe that that history of silencing and also to speak to what you said earlier, it is safe for me to spout off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not safe for a majority of women in this country also, yeah. you know, and so there, you know, that that's complex in, in and of itself. Um, so, but in learning that I now have this option um, to, to say, okay, I've spouted off a lot. I've said a lot of things to a lot of people, including him. I've said things publicly. Now I'm going to, um, pause like novel idea. I'm going to pause before I say something. And, um, that, that is the piece that's allowed me to hold, to hold more center. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Mm. Um, and, and wanting, and, and wanting that, I think it's a natural maturation process. You know, I'm 40 now and I just feel like, I don't know if are you, when you're 20, do you want to do that? I don't think, I don't know. A lot of people don't, you know, when you're, I just, I, I really see these decades of our lives having certain collective, um, vibrations. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I love listening to you and I'm grateful for this uh, combination of wisdom that you bring. And as one of your students, I, I am so inspired by and moved by the way that you teach and the way that you um, engage people in their own creative process. And so I would love to just finish with a bit of that conversation, how you came to be the the teacher that you are and any advice that you have for people who may feel disconnected from their creative process. Yeah. Yeah, even that last part you said makes me sort of imagine all those folks. Um, I came to this work sort of organically, I think as most people do to their work. Um, and it is my like deepest joy and heart work. Um, I am not drained by facilitating groups ever. 
Uh, I'm drained by things like email and social media, <laughs> but, uh, but that I'm not drained by. And so um, I'm really drawn to the, the human story and the human story, particularly collectively and the power of that collective um, sharing that really is old and ancient. Um, so, so that, that, I mean, there's a long story about how I came into that work, but, but that's, that's what I do. And, and I love, and I think for people who don't feel um, connected, first of all, it's our birthright. Everyone is a creative person. That's off the bat. Like I'm, my mission is to pull writing or any sort of quote creative endeavor, like down from the pedestal and just say, this is ours. Like we are all creative people. You don't have to be a published author or a famous artist or whatever. Um, and so we, we all have the opportunity to tap into that. And it also doesn't have to be quote big, like baby steps feels important. And so for me in my own life, I'm not actively writing right now. I'm in a fallow period with my writing, which I really trust. I trust that cyclical process. Mm -hmm. And so my creative acts look very simple, like planting plants. I'm not even kidding. Like potting plants and putting them around my house. Um, rearranging stones that I find outside, um, occasionally painting with my kids, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, I think we've been fed this lie that it has to be this massive act. We have to create a masterpiece of some kind and that, that's useful and, and fun, but, and a process, but I think these tiny little, um, tiny little daily acts are like the, uh, the bedrock of a creative life. And so, and then they feed, they feed on each other. It feeds itself. And then you want more and you want to do it more and more. So that's what I would say is start there. Um, and then you will find that you're drawn to something that like, maybe you feel like you want to write a poem or you want to make a song or, you know, gosh, even coming up with stories with my kids or singing random songs that I make up to my kids. That's a creative act, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I know that sounds easy coming, you know, from someone maybe who like, oh, but Molly, you're a published author, so you get to say that, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I get that some people might feel that way, but even before, I don't know, I just feel like that's the, um, that's the grounding. And if we're all doing that, then we are better for each other and better for ourselves, really. So little, little steps, baby steps always in everything. Thank you. You're welcome. There's a, a spiritual educator that I follow named Tanya Reikley, and she has um, an email that she sends out inspired by different um, significant kind of feminist figures like Mary Magdalene and Bridget of Kildare, and the Irish folklore is really her primary inspiration, but her email is called The Daily Sacred Act. And mm -hmm. I would summarize what you just said <laughs> that way, yeah. like your, your daily sacred act of making up a song and um, finding a way to say what you need to say, tend what needs to be tended to. And uh, with that, Molly, I just want to thank you deeply for all that you are, all that you've made. Uh, and would you please tell folks how they can find you and connect with you? Yeah, um, you can find me on my website, which is mollycaromade.com, and lots of ways to connect or, um, you know, 
be in workshops with me there. I also, the only social media platform I do is Instagram. I'm currently off Instagram for a month. This is my own self-nourishing practice. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be back on at the end of this month. Um, I have fun there. So that's a place um, to connect with me. And I welcome the connection. And your story loops. Yes. And, I, and, and I'm doing, um, I have two I've, uh, workshop series that happens every month. It happens twice a month. There are two different ones. I have my original story loop, which is a, it's a two hour um, writing experience. We do six to eight prompts, we share. It's around a theme that's already preset. Next month is on, uh, this month is August 31st and the theme is elements, which is how your constitution steers how you make story. Um, and then I have a second set of story loops brought on by the pandemic and by um, Black Lives Matter, by all the things that have happened sort of um, come to the forefront. And that is, those themes are to be determined because I'm just trying to take the pulse of what's around me. Mm -hmm. I just did one on preparation because I feel like people are trying to prepare for the fall. And that, all the proceeds of that one go to the Loveland Foundation Therapy Fund, which, um, provides financial assistance for black um, women and girls who are seeking therapy. So that's that one. And then mm -hmm. the other one is already preset. And those are both on my website. And they're fun. And it's for anyone. Like, it's just writing story, sharing story. It's a healing process. It's wonderful uh, having participated. I can attest. It's, I've yeah, I've kept in touch with a couple people from that story loop. And it's just sort wow. of amazing. Yeah. Um, and it really, it really, uh, facilitated exactly the experience you were naming sort of your purpose for teaching writing of like, we know how to do this. This is yeah. so natural. This is so human. This is so comforting. Yeah. Um, and very creatively stimulating. So highly recommend. And, um, Molly, you're a treasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. I would love to talk to you again about anything at all. Um, but certainly there's no shortage of fodder <laughs> for us to dissect yeah. from the perspectives of storytelling and human capacity and collective healing. So I look forward to the next time. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks so much. Love being with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like this episode, please leave a comment. Please share through all your channels. And you also have the opportunity to make a donation to ensure that these amazing conversations continue with ease. I appreciate you being here. I'm curious to hear how this conversation has impacted you, and I hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>